We're going to take a look at our last topic in the Ordo Salutis, the Order of Salvation. I'm going to pray first, give everybody a second. I think we have a few trickling in, and um, everybody a second just to transition, and then we'll jump right into it. Our Lord and our God, O oh Father, uh, what a blessing the Lord's Day has been already, Father. Uh, I pray now that you help us, Father, a very different uh, venue, different context to consider your truths, Father. Uh, help us to have a good discussion, Lord. Help there to be participation. May we uh, more rightly understand the things that you have taught us and how it should affect our emotions, how it should affect our outlook, how we encounter difficulties, Father. Uh, the hope that we have to look forward to that is assured, it's done, it's sealed, it will happen. You have said it's going to happen. Yet there's still much to be about now, Father. Um, expand our minds. Uh, amaze us with who you are, Lord. Uh, we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so in the Ordo Salutis, we come to our, our final uh, topic, which is what? Glorification. glorification, okay? Now, out of all the topics that we've had so far, I would say that glorification uh, would have the most mystery to it, if you would, a mystery in the, in the biblical sense of there being a truth that God will reveal, but at this point, He has kept much of it back. Make sense? Everything else... Uh, in the Christian life, with the exception of maybe sanctification, has been, has been accomplished. And you now are in the midst of sanctification, but glorification is the thing that we have yet to experience. In fact, uh, I would submit that there is not a person other than Christ who has gotten there, because that is to come. Now, to be absent with the bodies, to be present with the Lord, that glorification is something that we are all awaiting still. If I had to ask you, again, I encourage you guys to, to talk. Um, it helps me. I think it helps everybody in this setting, like in a Sunday school setting, to have conversations. It helps these lines to kind of line up in our brain. If I had to ask you, um, what is glorification or brief definition? Does anybody want to throw one out, what it is, what your thoughts are? Remember, there's no stupid answers, just stupid people. I think that's what they say. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, any ideas? Glorification? Praying? Praying? No, no, but thank you. Anybody? You guys are going to be a quiet group, aren't you? Perfection? Yeah, that's it. That's it. It's more than that, but it's definitely that. Yes, removal of sinful desire, absolutely. Uh, today we'll take a look at... Uh, what we know, again, some of it being a mystery to the Christian, and rightly understood, uh, this should be a great comfort for us, especially uh, in times when our work with Christ uh, can be discouraging, okay? So the Christian life uh, with adversity and difficulties, hardships, um, loss of a job, loss of a family member, um, people that we care about, we've shared the gospel with countless times, still in their sins. Uh, the sovereignty of God is a wonderful comfort in those contexts, okay? When it comes to discouragement, uh, it, specifically in the context of our sanctification, when we think we're doing pretty good because the Lord is, is gracious and He's growing us, and then He pulls back a bit, or there's a sin that we think, man, I really put that, I thought I put that sin to death, and here it comes creeping back in, or uh, you just, you uh, you see something in your life that's been there, like, I well, I've been doing this, I didn't see that. And you can be discouraged at times. The promise 
of glorification should be a fuel to us to persevere, uh, not to make a justification for our sinfulness, but to say we are going somewhere by the power of Christ, by the power of God and His decree, we will get to the place where we will have uh, the, we have the loss of sinful desire, okay? Uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Uh, we'll read verse 8, 28 through 30. Extremely familiar passage. In fact, um, if I could have a volunteer to read those couple verses, does anybody want to volunteer to read those? Romans eight twenty-eight through 30. Thank you. My first encounter with this passage was uh, contemplating being confronted with Reformed theology, and that's what its most familiar association is. But verse 28, uh, we know that for those who love God, and those are Christians, those are people who love God because God first loved them, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. So the adversities of life, the highs, the lows, they're working together for good, uh, to those who love God, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, we, we, we went over that in our Odo Salutis, right? Uh, he foreknew, he also predestined, so that pre, that, that's pre-existing before predestination, in the mind of God, he knew you. If you're in Christ, he knew you. And the language is similar, it's the same word, in fact, if you liken back to, to Genesis, when Adam knew his wife, and they, and she became pregnant, okay? So, it, is, it speaks of the most intimate knowledge. The most intimate knowledge humans can have is a husband and a wife in marriage. But there's a deeper intimacy of knowledge, and that is the knowledge that God had for His children before the world was created. He foreknew them. He also predestinated to be conformed to the image of His Son. What is that? He predestined that you would be conformed to the image of His Son. What do we call that? Wrong guesses are okay. What do we call the term that he predestined uh, us to be conformed to the image of his son? The elect are the ones that are predestined. I would say sanctification. Be conformed to the image of his son. So predestined to salvation, but specifically here, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What is that? Firstborn among many brothers. We'll get back to that in a second. So this is all in the context of all things working together for good, all right? The foreknowledge, the predestination, the being conformed to the image of his son, who is the firstborn of many brethren, and those whom he predestined, he also called. That's the effectual calling. We went over that too. Those whom he called, he also what? Justified. Justification. Made right. Um, 
I, that was the last one I taught was justification. Remember, we contrasted that, if you were here, with the Roman Catholic understanding and then the biblical understanding, and they're not the same thing at all, very different. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glorified. So I got the ESV. I don't know if it's a little different. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What tense is that in? Past tense. So I started off saying that this is something that, other than Christ, the firstborn of many brethren, no Christian has been glorified yet, okay? Why do you think Paul writes like this? Why would he write in the past tense? Any idea? It's done. It's accomplished. It's accomplished. We're not there. It's done. It's accomplished. And I, I, I highlight that to say, again, likening back to the, the motivation, the encouragement when you're discouraged, that Christ has accomplished this. Now, I have a little visual aid. I'm going to need three volunteers. Um, I, I stole this from R.C. Sproul. Um, it was good. I liked it. So three volunteers. Young people work better if any young people want to volunteer. Parents, you're allowed to force them. Okay. Remind me of your name again? Josh. Josh. Okay. So you're going to stand right here, okay. and he's going to re- represent the, the holiness of Jesus. Not Jesus, but positionally, the holiness of Jesus. So I need a, another volunteer. Sorry. SLA. I know my kid's name. Sorry. <laughs> Do I call you by the wrong name every day? Yeah. How many times? Ten times a day. Unfortunately, you volunteered to be Hitler. That's Hitler. Okay, so Hitler, the righteousness of Christ. One more volunteer. Yanni, come on up. This is R.C.'s illustration. He gets the credit. I changed it a little bit, but it works. Okay, so um, you're going to play the part of John the Apostle, or actually John the Baptist, I'm sorry, who Jesus Christ said was the greatest man born of woman. So between Hitler and the righteousness of Christ, where do you think the greatest man born of woman would be on that, on that spectrum? You're correct, over here. You stand over here. Okay. A little closer? A little closer. A little bit closer. Okay. All right. So it, it's a bit of an extreme example to really point something out, okay? So in a lifetime of sanctification, we think that we're, we're moving over here, right? And that's the direction we're moving. But the reality of it it is, compared to Christ, we are worlds closer to here our entire life, okay? And uh, contrasting that with the Roman Catholic understanding, they'd be on the other side, growing towards their justification, right? But Yanni, if you'll come over here with me, and stand right back here, Okay, so in glorification, you're right behind the righteousness of Christ, right? Um, Christ being the firstborn of many brethren, that gap is, is, is filled at the time of glorification. Thank you, guys. You can sit down. And I brought up John the Baptist specifically because Jesus Christ said he was the greatest man born of woman. Yet, anybody remember what he goes on to say there? What's that? Well, he goes on to say that the least in heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Make sense? Because why? Because they've jettisoned their sinful flesh, okay? This is in, in the heaven to come, okay? 
that helpful? You follow me there? Okay. Um, turn with me to uh, John chapter 5. And don't worry, I'm going to get into a definition here shortly. Just kind of lay a little groundwork. John 5, 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment, because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. And come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So an hour is coming when every person who has ever lived from Adam until the last person that's passed away will come out. They'll be called out. They will be resurrected unto a judgment. Those who died outside of Christ to a judgment of condemnation and those who are in Christ into everlasting fellowship and glorification with the Father. I have a question for you. Have you ever wondered or perhaps even thought it was unfair that a person can live on this earth and let's say a relatively short amount of time, 18 years, 16 years, 20 years, die outside of Christ and spend an eternity in the lake of fire made for Satan and his angels? Has that ever, I I know in witnessing encounters, I've, I've heard people bring this up and usually they're in two different camps just to generalize. One person brings it up, and it's a charge against God as though God is unfair or unjust. And my recommendation in in those scenarios is that you don't give an answer. You simply let them know of the justice of God, and that's as far as that goes. But there are people, I've counted many of them, sincerely. It seems that they have an idea of God, which they do, which is a bit fashioned in their own image, that God is love and that God of love is their definition of love, not the biblical definition, but God is nice, essentially, is what they mean. And they think, well, you know, surely after 10,000 years, a million years in their mind, they're rationalizing that. God would, he would be done, right? He would say, enough is enough. So um, have you ever considered that? Has that? Have you ever thought that that seems harsh, that seems almost unfair? Again, we, we have the biblical answer, and we understand these things. I'm not trying to undermine that. I'm saying... Um, the way that I instruct, I instruct my children uh, when we deal with some difficult passages, sometimes things that seem uh, where, where the manifestation of God's judgment might seem to us a bit harsh. We talk about, well, how do we feel? Then we talk about, why do we feel that way? Right? We want to bring our emotions in line with the Scriptures. We think too lowly of God's holiness, too highly of ourselves, too little of our sins, so our conclusions sometimes are, my emotions seem that God is a bit harsh here, but we can't understand the holiness of God, and we can't understand our own sin, right? The whole entire world was plunged into death and destruction by one bite of a fruit that was forbidden. Clearly, sin is much worse than any of us really grasp. But that's, that's the theological 
explanation for that. Um, but the, the, uh, the idea that I've had, just contemplating this in witness encounters, is this. Um, this is a bit of my own, just supposing over the scriptures. I can't turn to a verse and say explicitly this is there, but there are principles that I think work well, and it's, it's this. In the lake of fire, um, there will be wailing and what? Gnashing of teeth. Who gnashes their teeth? What sort of emotions accompany that gnashing of teeth? We've seen a lot of it the last few weeks on on the news regarding the potential overturning of Roe versus Wade. There's a lot of people gnashing their teeth, literally gnashing their teeth. Uh, What sort of emotions accompany that? Like what precedes people doing that? Anger, yes. What else? Wrath, people getting mad. Um, Well, those are all right. Murder of the heart. Murder of the heart. Is that, is that fair? Murder of the heart. So in, in hell, in, in the lake of fire, people will be wailing and gnashing their teeth at who? At God. Gnashing their teeth at God. There's many sins that will not be able to be expressed in, 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 in eternity for those outside of Christ, right? Um, darkness, lake of fire. But they will be gnashing their teeth at God. What's, what's my point here? Um, in regards, in, in the context of glorification, glorification is a sweet, amazing promise to those who are in Christ that there's coming a day where you will have your body resurrected and you will look in some similitude to the way you look. Now, there'll be a connection. These bodies w- are fallen, they're affected by sin. Uh, they're decaying, they're breaking down, they will die, but you will be raised up again. And after the, ju- the great judgment of God, there will be a glorification of your body by wherefore your sinful bend that's still in your flesh, right? Our hearts are regenerate, but that sinful flesh is still there, will be gone. And that promise is explicitly for the children of God. That's the contrast. In other words, those who die outside of Christ will be resurrected with a body fit for torment and in their sin. The, 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 the justice of God demands absolute uh, justice for one's sin. That is doctrinally sound. Contemplating this idea I see the wrath of God being poured out on those in the lake of fire for eternity, for their sins in this life, and their continual hatred, murder of the heart towards God for eternity. Because they, they won't be free of the sinful uh, bend that they've had in this life. That is a, an explicitly uh, uh, explicit gift to the children of God. Does that make, that make sense? That is something that is promised to the children of God. Uh, Turn with me to Revelations chapter 20. Any comments so far? Any uh, thoughts? I know somebody has something. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, contrasting the idea, the, the Christian 
what's promised the Christian is in eternity, a new body free of sin, as opposed to those who die in their sins that will be continually storing up more wrath before a holy God. And it says in Revelation that the smoke of their torment will rise before uh, his throne. You're a quiet bunch. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. This is a terrifying thought. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it is um, trying to, we can, we can understand how it's laid out, but trying to grasp it, it is, you can't get your, your mind around it because it's, uh, the more you try to capture the thought and, and think about it, the more it grows. It gets, the implications of it grow and it's bigger and bigger the more you think about it. Absolutely. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. So I mentioned the, the judgment seat of, of God earlier. This is John's revelation of Jesus Christ. And then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Contemplating that right there, that this idea that there's this, the Father on His throne, and the earth and sky itself are being pushed out from the presence of its Creator. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. Uh, back at this time, uh, Everything revolved around the Greco-Roman world, Rome. Uh, each city had a, a book of its citizens uh, that was the, the ledger, the, the legal, uh, the immigration, if you will, of, of, the, of their citizens. If, if you claim to be a, a Roman citizen, as Paul used his Roman citizenship, they could go to that place and they could check, and your name had to be written in that book as a Roman citizen or whatever you were claiming to say. If it was not, 
then you were, no matter what you said, that was not applied to you. You could say whatever had to be found in the book. That, that is the background of when we we're referencing this here. That's the, the, the intended uh, understanding, the, the audience that this was written to would have understood it this way. So the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, the books were open. So this is, what, what is their citizenship? Who do they belong to? Where's their, where is their, their um, dwelling place, their city? Another book which is open, was open, which was the book of life. So here, who, who is accounted as a citizen of the book of life, of the city of life? And the dead, were, the dead were judged by what was written in the book according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hadis gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to what they had done. There's nowhere to hide if a person's lost at sea. The great, white throne, the great white throne judgment, they will be called forth. The martyrs who died in a, being burned at the stake, they will, they will be there. They will be reconstituted. Those who have died, in, or, uh, and uh, it refers to Hadis, or Hades, right? Um, the way I grew up, uh, I had kind of a misunderstanding. I think generally a lot of uh, evangelical Christians have not heretical understanding, but just kind of it's kind of blurry, right? Uh, if if you die now in Christ, you be absent with the bodies to be present with the Lord. You're with Him, but where's your body at? It's in the ground, right? It's in the ground. So that that there's a we kind of get the the uh, the time now and the heaven and earth, the new heavens and the new earth to come conflated sometimes, right? That's why I mentioned earlier that glorification has only been accomplished uh, in reality in Christ. It's been accomplished in the work. It's going to happen. But Christ is the only one. The rest of us will all be there at the same time. This is when this is happening. The great white throne judgment. Death, I'm sorry, the oceans give up their dead. Uh, Every person who has ever lived and died, all those who are in uh, Hadith, which is the place if you're outside of Christ, and you're dead, you're waiting for the great white throne judgment. You're waiting, well, you're not waiting, but you're in, a, in the waiting process for your resurrected body fit for hell, for the lake of fire. Um, they're all, they will all be there. They were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done, verse 14. Uh, then death and Hadith were thrown into the lake of fire. I think the King James referred to Hadith as hell. I think it uses the same word, actually, for both. So it's confusing sometimes. Death and Hadith were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. When we... Yes, Robert. So there's uh, um, different ideas. So going to the white throne judgment to be judged is different than being at the white throne judgment. So I don't have a a position there. I've heard people say that we will be on the side of like helping in the judgment. I started off with this. Thank you for asking because I don't want anything to be misunderstood. I started with saying that out of everything we talked about, there's the most mystery left. 
to this topic. In fact, when Paul went to heaven, he said, there's no words to even describe what I saw. And so, and he saw it, and I haven't. So I'm just trying to take what we have here. But um, I've heard it say that Christians will be at a, they call it a Bema seat judgment, judging our faithfulness to Christ. But um, yeah, that's a good point. Um, I was kind of collecting everybody. But yeah, I, I, I've heard, and it makes sense to me that we will be present, but not in the, the judgment, obviously. So death and Hadith are thrown into the lake of fire. Um, this is the second death, and that's what we colloquially will refer to as hell, right? So you could say in that, if that's how we mean it, the, the lake of fire, that nobody's in hell at this point. Now, there's people that have died outside of Christ. It's not a pleasant place where they are. We don't, have a, we don't know much about it. Uh, prior to Christ on the cross, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, the, the parable refers to Abraham's bosom being a place where everybody was, but there was a chasm, and there was those who were in looking towards uh, Yahweh's Messiah, not knowing his name to be Jesus, and there was those outside, um, and then the captives were set free. Uh, a lot of, there's a lot there that we don't know fully. The whole point is that there will be a culmination of time, and at that culmination of time, uh, well, let me read on here first. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So I didn't, I didn't even think about the, your question there, but it, it seems that maybe some of, the, some of the people's name will be found in the book of life, and if they're not, I'm not really sure. Yeah, <laughs> I would agree. <laughs> I would agree. Uh, chapter 21, I'm going to read on a few more verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, I'm sorry, out of heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What's going on there? Where is, where is this place? Where is this new heaven and this new earth? It's here, essentially, right? It's here. God's making all things new. There's, those who have uh, died in Christ are with the Father now. They are with Christ. Their bodies are not there. I don't know. I don't know if, they, if you get a loner. I don't know. I don't, we don't know. But <laughs> they're there, and they will get their bodies back. And this is where this is happening. The uh, new city came down, New Jerusalem, as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. In the original order of things, were things ever like this on earth? Not at this level, but when God created Adam and Eve before the fall, they were fellowship with God, 
in the garden, everything was good. In fact, everything was really good, he says at the end of creation, right? Every day, morning, evening was good, and then the last day, and everything was really good. Sin came. Death came. Christ came. Made all th- is made, he, he completed the work. He's making all things new. And here we see a return to the design that God had initially only better because everything that God does is good. We will be on the other side. Verse 4, as we're dwelling with God, we are his people. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, uh, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. All of those things that are enumerated there, mourning, crying, pain, the former things, all connected to sin, right? We experience, we're, if you're in Christ now, you're justified. A holy and righteous God sees you as righteous as Christ, right? Just follow me on that? Okay. If you're in Christ. However, we are, the, the term, I think, is simul justus in peccator, saved yet sinning, right? We're battling, our, we're working out our sanctification by the power of the Spirit. There's coming a time where that will pass away. No more tears, no more pain. Um, we'll be praising God for eternity, but there's never going to be another time where you have to come and say, I'm, God, I'm sorry. Again, I've done this, Lord. Help me with this. Why do I do this? Where did that come from? I'm sorry, I spoke harshly to my wife, my kids, in traffic. Whatever it is, my thoughts, my tongue, no more. God's putting it away. And He doesn't just take it away. He gives us a glorified body, physical body, and we will dwell with our God the way that we were intended to for all eternity. Verse 5. And he who has... who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, uh, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Fire and brimstone and sulfur. There's a time coming where these things will be accomplished. This is, is more than just an explanation. Like the, the goal here isn't simply to tell you what's to come for just you know knowledge and facts. The whole point here is that we can trust in what the Lord has said that He has accomplished and will come. It will come. No doubt about it. God has said it. He has told us there is coming a day, if you're in Christ, where you will no longer sin, all as a gift from God. So when we are discouraged, the point is this, of course to repent, of course to confess to the Lord and cling more tightly, 
to what God has promised us. Let it be a motivation to you to persevere, knowing that this is temporary, right? This is temporary. We will come to a point where no longer we'll have to deal with our sinful inclinations. Um, what will eternity be like? I've, I've used this uh, illustration about how, I, I can't really tell you. It's an exercise, okay? Uh, have you guys ever had a dream? I, I think when we're teenagers, when I was a teenager, these were more common. I had a dream that was extremely vivid to the point that when you, when you wake up, it's, that, that seemed almost more real for a second. Like It was just so vivid. You guys know what I'm talking about? Super vivid dreams. I, I haven't had them in years, but as a teenager, I had a lot of them. So, and this is just me. Um, this, I'm not saying that this is the scriptural description. This is just me trying to grasp this idea that in eternity, after this has happened, we are in new, the New Jerusalem. We are fellowshipping with our God for eternity. Perfect fellowship, perfect worship. Uh, we are we are never able to exhaust. There's always something new for eternity to learn of God because He's un. un searchable. He's, he's inexhaustible. And we use the term years. I don't think there's years in eternity, but we use that term in a million years. There's still more to understand. We'll never exhaust it. But the idea that this life itself, in comparison to when we are glorified with uh, our God, will almost be like the dream. Like when you wake up from a very vivid dream it seems so real, but as you, you wake up and you realize I was sleeping, the, the dream fades. It still seemed real, but it kind of fades, right? It fades. And I think, this is, again, me just supposing this, but in a similar manner, of course, taller, broader, deeper, that this, this life in light of our eternity with our Father will be like that. We'll remember it. We'll remember the amazing things the Lord did. We'll testify of it. We'll glorify Him of what He did in this life. But my, I guess my point is to say this, that in eternity, that is the ultimate reality. That is what God has for his people, a glorified body. And the reality is that much more vivid than this life. This life is marred with sin, right? Weakness. That's, that is ultimate reality. Uh, make sense? That's what I got for you guys. Questions.